The world is moving exponentially toward developing technology to mark, identify, and encode individuals. Bible prophecy written about 2,000 years ago in the book of Revelation foretold a time when a future world government will impose a universal mark. People will be required to have some sort of mark on their bodies in order to buy or sell anything. In the past, when I studied end-time prophecy, I wondered how a global government would be able to control entire nations. But with a coronavirus outbreak, we've witnessed a dry run of an astonishing degree of compliance to regulations worldwide. And fear has been a big motivating factor. The actual fulfillment of prophecies in the book of Revelation would have been highly improbable until recent advances in technology. Biometric ID systems forebode the beginnings of the ominous mark of the beast foretold in the book of Revelation. Already there's a certain amount of loathing against believers and free thinkers who even question the direction that biometric technology is taking us. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. A pestilence that's gone around the world, earthquakes, cataclysmic floods, the worst fires in history, plagues of locusts, killer hornets, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis. Some wonder if God has lost control of this planet. But on the contrary, it seems to me that God is sending many loud and clear messages for people to wake up. Jesus will return to rule this world as he promised. The birth pain signaling the end of the age is coming. So now is the time to get right with God. There's no need to worry about the Green New Deal because Jesus has his own New Deal of right living that he will impose on the world when he returns. King Messiah will renovate this earth, wars will vanish, and even the animal kingdom will live in peace. Meanwhile, we wait and pray for a major new awakening to save as many souls as possible. But rebels and reprobates are still desperately trying to take God out of our public lives. The abortion issue has spiraled into infanticide. In these days of breakdown and uncertainty, I want you to be assured that God is in control and at work behind the scenes to fulfill His eternal purposes. The extraordinary fact in our lifetime that the nation of Israel has been resurrected and is increasingly being cornered by God for the earth's greatest revival, all of this should give us tremendous hope and perspective. Many of my pastoral friends believe, like I do, that the great tribulation period, when the mark of the beast will be imposed, happens only after the church of true believers has been removed by the Lord. That dramatic intervention by God will plunge the world surely into great chaos. It's called the great snatch, the translation to heaven of all true believers. 
when millions of people are missing, a horrendous time in the history of humanity will begin. Paul the Apostle described this future event in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he wrote, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep in death, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we who are still alive shall be instantly changed into our immortal bodies. So the New Testament teaches that there will be a generation of believers who will never die, but they will be, as Paul also wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, caught up together with the resurrected dead in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. Well, the Bible speaks very plainly of a seven-year period in the future called the Great Tribulation. That's mentioned in Matthew 24, 21, and in Revelation 7, 14. Also, according to the most apocalyptic book of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Daniel, the Great Tribulation period will begin when Israel and a world leader, the Antichrist, confirm a covenant. That'll be some sort of peace treaty for seven years. And we find that reference in Daniel 9, 27. The Bible prophecy predicting a cashless society is Revelation chapter 13, beginning with verse 16 at the end of the book here, where we're told that he, referring to the future global leader known as the Antichrist, called the beast, will cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and no one will be able to buy or sell except they have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And it says, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of a man. His number is 666. Theologians may argue ad infinitum about what exactly all of this means or portends, but to many Bible believers, the Word of God is clear. And that is one day in the future, an emerging authority figure will demand that everybody is implanted or tattooed with a distinguishing mark on the right hand or forehead. And this mark will be a precondition to participate in society. Already in communist China, we see the beginnings of this antichrist system with social scoreboarding. China's so-called social credit system is a national reputation system intended to track and evaluate individuals and businesses for their trustworthiness. Trustworthiness to the government, of course, but not to God. A world government could control commerce only when a society becomes cashless, and many countries are rapidly moving toward a cashless society. For example, already in Belgium, non-cash payments make up 93% of all consumer payments. Cashless transactions reportedly amount to 89% in the United Kingdom and 90% in Canada. Humanly speaking, biometric identities make sense because society is faced with too much fraud and identity theft. 
and there's a growing need to track terrorists and cyber crime. But technology becomes sinister when it requires loyalty to a government or to a leader over and above God. Biometric technology has quickly established itself as a means of identifying and authenticating individuals' identities using facial recognition, fingerprints, iris scans, and so forth. Millions of smartphones are now unlocked with a fingerprint or with facial recognition. In the past, I wondered how it would be possible for the Antichrist to control poor and highly populated nations. Yet India's Adhar project is by far the world's largest biometric identification system. That means India has the world's largest biometric database, which can reportedly verify a person's identity within 200 milliseconds. Well, all Indian residents have been issued a unique 12-digit identity number, and this number is based on their biographic and biometric data such as a photograph, 10 fingerprints, and two iris scans. As of January 2020, more than one and a quarter billion Indians now have a forgery-proof number, covering more than 99% of the adult population. Yes, I said over one and a quarter billion people have a unique number. And various employers the world over are increasingly using biometric data in the workplace. These techniques include facial characteristics, hand geometry, retina and iris scans, fingerprints, as well as voice prints. Biometric data can be used to establish records of employee hours, to restrict access, to provide security and to promote, for example, employee health through wellness programs. Well, so far, these systems don't qualify as an antichrist system, but technology is coming close to the time when ID requirements will become mandatory in order to buy or sell. While all of this is developing, what does God require of believers? Well, three characteristics God looks for in the believers in the last days, whom he will use and honor, are faith, loyalty, and holiness. Biblical faith unites us with Jesus and his throne to be ready for his soon return. And one of my favorite scriptures in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, the Bible tells us that the sons of Issachar, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, were outstanding because they had understanding of the times. It's my prayer that the Lord once again will have a people today who understand the times in which we're living, and by understanding the times, we will be prepared to meet the returning bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. If you are a believer who understands the times, like the children of Issachar did, then you will be eagerly praying for and watching for one of the great end-time signs that the Bible teaches. And that sign is great resurrection power in the Middle East. Not only are the Arabs experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through supernatural dreams and visions of Jesus, but also the nation of Israel is promised both a physical and a spiritual resurrection. 
You know, it's such a crying shame that throughout church history, the church has not taught nor anticipated the world's greatest revival. And that will be when the nation of Israel will be visited once again by God in a supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit as prophesied in Zechariah 12.10. In fact, Israel's future revival has been denied, scoffed at, and even fought against in the churches. But we're taught in the Psalms to recognize God in history. Behind everything is the hand of God bringing history to a climax when Jesus will return to rule over his people Israel and to rule the entire world from Israel's capital city, Jerusalem. Not Rome, but Jerusalem, where God has placed his name forever. God's special dealings with nations, especially with his covenant people Israel, should be clearly studied and recognized in history and in modern times. Israel was and is God's chief nation. As a city set on a hill, Israel was chosen by God for the instruction to be a light to all nations and peoples. The principles and laws by which God governed and judged Israel are the same principles and laws that he uses to govern and judge people everywhere, in all times and in all lands. You see, Israel was chosen by God to be his people unto whom were committed the oracles, the divine revelations of God. He is their watchman, and it is God who keeps Israel, who keeps nations and individuals alive. Now, the Apostle Paul had a lot to say about Israel's future in Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 11 where he asked rhetorically, have the Jewish people stumbled that they should fall? Or as the Message Bible puts it, are they down for the count? Are they out for good? And the answer Paul gives is a clear no. God forbid, he says, but rather through their fall into unbelief concerning Jesus as Messiah, the way was made for salvation to visit the Gentiles and in order for God to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. Ironically, when Israel forfeited the Messiah, they left the door open and outsiders, the Gentiles, walked in to God's covenant by faith. But the Jews will begin to wonder if they did forfeit a good thing. Now Paul reasons if their temporary rejection of the Messiah triggered a worldwide coming of non-Jewish outsiders into God's kingdom. Just imagine the effect of their coming back to Messiah. And Paul calls it, here in this chapter 11 of Romans, resurrection power from the dead it's going to be. And if their falling out initiated this worldwide movement of the nations into the kingdom of God, he says their recovery is going to set off something even better a spectacular revival. Paul wrote, some of the tree's branches were pruned, cut off, and you, a wild olive branch, you were grafted in. Yet the fact that you believers are now fed by the rich and holy Hebrew root gives you no cause to boast over the pruned branches. Remember, Paul says, you are not feeding the root, but the root is feeding you. Hallelujah. 
Well, various commentaries say that the Jewish people must one day look on with hungry, wistful eyes as they see the multitudes from the nations that have come from the east, west, north, and south sitting down at the table of God. And when they turn unto their own Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua is his name in Hebrew, and receive the new life of his gospel, oh, what an electric thrill shall pass through the whole world. Paul says it's going to be resurrection life from the dead. So Paul wrote in Romans 11, if their temporary rejection is the means of reconciliation of the whole world, what will their full acceptance be but life from the dead? I want you to know this is not mere speculation or wishful thinking because Paul thoroughly knew the Hebrew prophets had foretold both a physical and spiritual restoration of God's covenant people. In Ezekiel 37, concerning Israel's dry bones coming back to life, Ezekiel prophesied about an event that we recently commemorated, the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Nazi concentration camps by Allied forces. Amazingly, some 2,500 years before it all happened, Ezekiel had prophesied that the whole house of Israel would be brought back to the promised land, after which the Lord promises to reveal himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. Modern Israel is now over 70 years old, and there are reportedly now more Jews living in the state of Israel than in the diaspora. More significantly still, Jewish people are discovering Jesus in increasing numbers. In an article recently published by Prophecy Today magazine, there was the testimony of a professor who was informed about Jesus at a private school but the professor's rabbi convinced him that Jesus was not the Messiah. However, the professor's search for truth continued until one day he had an amazing vision of Jesus himself, brightly illuminated and standing in front of a cross. Well, the vision just left him profoundly shocked and physically shaken. Well, despite the Jewish people's overall reluctance to recognize Jesus, why should the church honor and support them anyway? Well, the Bible teaches that the Jews are beloved by our Heavenly Father, and they have a definite future with Him. I've often said that if we want to know God better, we need to know what He loves. And He loves them with an everlasting love, and He considers the Jewish people to be His treasured possession, the very apple of His eye. So if we claim to love Jesus, how can we not love his family, the Jewish people? In identifying with them, we would do well to emulate Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, who was mentioned in a book by Charles Gardner called A Nation Reborn. In January 1945, Master Sergeant Edmonds saved the lives of 200 Jews. Edmonds was the highest ranking officer among more than a thousand American GIs in a World War II prisoner of war camp. Edmonds was instructed by the German commanding officer to identify the Jews amongst them. And with a gun held against his head, Edmonds flatly refused, saying, we are all Jews. That story encouraged me that sometimes people do the right thing. And in Denmark, 
both the king and the majority of the Danish people stood by their Jewish citizens, and they were instrumental in saving most all of them from Nazi persecution and death. The Apostle Paul, as a Pharisee, was certainly concerned about the salvation of his kinsmen, his fellow Jews. And at one point, he wrote that he wished himself to be accursed if it might save them. So he deeply cared about his own flesh and blood. And our loved ones do have special claims upon our prayers, don't they? And the Jews are our elder brothers, our patriarchs in the faith. They are beloved because of their fathers. And nothing short of their eternal salvation should satisfy us. Well, through many hardships, tests, and trials in these days, the Lord is training each believer now so that we'll know how to rule and reign with him throughout eternity, beginning with the millennium. That's the thousand years of the Lord's reign on earth from Jerusalem in the future. Now, in the Bible, there's one of my favorite psalms. It's a powerful psalm. It's only seven verses. And it's Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. One of my mentors hardly ever spoke about intercession without making reference to this Psalm. It starts out, the Lord said to my Lord, referring to the Messiah, set you at my right hand until I make your adversaries your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing volunteers in the day of your power. This Psalm 110 is one of the most important messianic psalms in the Bible. It refers to the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, as Messiah. And Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus discussed it with Israel in Matthew chapter 22. While the Pharisees were assembled, Jesus questioned them. He asked, what do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah? Whose son is he? David's son, they answered. Jesus said, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? For David says, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus said, if David calls him Lord, how can he be, at the same time, David's son? Well, this was a riddle that could only be understood if people knew their scriptures. But no one was able to answer a word. And from that day, no one dared to question Jesus any further. Now, Jesus' question to his people, what do you think of the Messiah, was put to a representative assembly. For example, the Herodians, the party of the Sadducees, the scribes, and especially the party of the Pharisees, in addition to his own disciples and the people at large. And the question is also for us. What do you think about the Messiah? Well, their inability to answer the riddle of Jesus being great David's greater son showed that their ignorance of Bible prophecies was the source of all of their fault finding. You see, God's covenant of blessing was established in the Bible with King David. Therefore, Messiah should appear in David's family line. So let's look at that. In the book of Genesis, the promise of the Savior was limited to the family of Adam 
to Seth's family line. Then it was narrowed down to Shem in the family of Noah. Then to Abraham in the line of Shem. The covenant was carried on further from Abraham through Isaac to Jacob and from Jacob through Jacob's son Judah all the way to King David. So the son of David became a prophetic title of the Messiah. And did Jesus fit the bill? Yes, and nobody dared to argue against his nobility because family lines were kept, those records, in the temple before the destruction of the second temple. And in the New Testament, the genealogy of Jesus is recorded in two Gospels. His royal line is traced through his legal father, Joseph, in the Gospel of Matthew. And his royal line is also traced through his mother, Mary, in the Gospel of Luke. The point is, Jesus was born of Davidic royal stock. He wasn't just any Galilean, but he was the heir to David's throne with royal blood flowing in his veins. And notably, although he was an itinerant evangelist and a carpenter's son, Jesus wore a robe that belonged to the noble higher class. It was very valuable, woven without any seam. And for that reason, at his death, the soldiers who oversaw the crucifixion cast lots for Jesus' seamless robe. Jesus knew his kingly connection to David, and he knew that the angel Gabriel had promised his mother Mary that he would inherit the throne of his father David. Well, that part of Gabriel's prophecy to Mary is yet to be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus when he rules from the ancestral throne of his father David. Eventually, the Jewish people will be convinced that Messiah did appear before the destruction of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the national genealogies perished, and nobody can now prove beyond a shadow of a doubt to be the son of David. But the genealogy of Jesus and his connection to David was proved at the enrollment for taxation at the time of his birth in the days of Caesar Augustus. When the records were intact, and all of this is recorded in the Gospels. He is both the son of David and the son of God because he was David's Lord before he became David's son. Only a thorough knowledge of the scriptures can explain that riddle. Presently, the Lord is seated at the right hand of God where Satan cannot dethrone him. But Psalm 110 teaches that in the interim, between the Lord's first and second comings, Spiritual warfare will continue. That's why Psalm 110 exhorts, rule in the midst of your enemies. The enthronement of the Lamb of God in heaven has not yet rid us of trouble and enemies. While Satan can't touch the risen Jesus, he can try to divert us from God's will, and he can try to immobilize us through fear, sickness, and many tactics of which we shouldn't be ignorant but we should put up a resistance. Great men and women of God during times of crises brought knowledge of Jesus to the world because they were not afraid of sickness and disease. They risked their lives to minister to the dying. In fact, knowledge of the Lord grew during epidemics because people of faith were willing to help others and to be the light. Amen. Well, I want you to feel free to contact me on the social media or through our website at exploits.tv 
where I'd like for you to sign up to receive our weekly updates and videos. And please don't forget to download our free Jerusalem Channel app and our ministry magazine, Exploits, based upon Daniel 11.32, which says that the people who know God are going to be strong, not weak, and we will accomplish exploits. And so until next time that we're together, I'll be contending as always for the faith and praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dar. Shalom and Maranatha. Here at the Jerusalem Channel, we work hard to keep you informed and up to date on prophetic end time events in the Holy Land. But we also see so many great humanitarian needs. And that's why your support is helping to keep this ministry lifting up the name of the Lord in the Middle East. One of our most recent projects was to donate and dedicate a fully equipped ambulance to Israel's National Volunteer Rescue Service. The ambulance is available to assist everyone, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and yes, even tourists who might need medical assistance. So thanks for being a part of the Jerusalem Channel by your gifts through our website or through our ministry addresses in the USA and the United Kingdom. Please help us to be a blessing to all the people of the Holy Land.